Well, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to page one? I think it's safe to say every Bible in this room, no matter which translation you have, it'll be on page one where we'll begin as we begin uh, our journey through Genesis. If I was to say that I'm excited to uh, go on this journey, it would be an understatement, just being able to see just already at the very beginning how the foundation of all things, the rest of Scripture begins uh, here in Genesis chapter 1. This morning, uh, we're going to do a sort of introduction and an overview of Genesis, uh, uh, a, a very basic one, and then next week uh, we'll begin to dive in. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Father, would you give us a sense of just reading the first verse of the Bible, of the immensity of those few words, Lord. Would you be gracious? Would your spirit help us this morning? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In order to understand anything about God, God must reveal himself to us. Just think about that for a minute. In order for us to understand anything about God, God must reveal himself to us. We can't get to him without him getting to us. He has done this through two fundamental modes of revelation. God's revealed to himself, himself to us in two fundamental ways. Through creation itself, that which we call general revelation, and through his word, that which we might call special revelation. We can't know anything about God at all unless he reveals himself through those two fundamental ways. In order to understand anything about God, let alone the origin of the universe or how it came to be, God must reveal it to us. Who could know anything about origins if they weren't there? There's only one who can tell us about the beginning, and he is the only one that was there. The one who is there can tell us. If, in fact, uh, we want to understand anything, not just about the origins of the universe, but about man and his purpose, or anything about the world we live in and the present state of things, things like life and death, sin and hope, 
In fact, to understand the Bible itself, we need to begin with the foundation of all of special revelation, and that being the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. The rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the New Testament, depends and continually points us back to what we find in Genesis. You can't understand who God is. You can't understand how the world came to be. You can't understand who you are. You can't understand anything about the purpose or value of your life. You can't make sense of what you see in the world if God did not give us this divinely inspired book. It is here that God himself, by his own will, through divine inspiration, through his prophet Moses, begins to reveal himself to us as the only true God, the one who has no beginning or end, the sovereign over all things, the creator of all things, and thereby both the only supreme judge and savior. Genesis is where the Christian worldview begins. So here's the reality. A good introduction is meant to make people lean in. So here it is. If you are not solid in Genesis, you cannot have a biblical world view. You can know a lot of stories in the Bible. You might know a lot of things the Bible talks about. But if you're not solid in Genesis, you cannot have a solid biblical world view. So why ought that make you lean in? You ought to ask yourself the question, do I understand what's in Genesis? Do I understand the content? Do I understand how the whole rest of the Bible stands on this foundation? I'll argue this point to you this morning. If you're not solid in Genesis, you can't be a good evangelist. You can't share the gospel well. You can't answer the questions that you're going to get in a fallen world. Someone might say, you mean to say if I'm not solid in Genesis, I can't have a, a Christian worldview? Is Christ in Genesis? The question might be. John 5.39, what did Jesus tell the Pharisees? He said, you search the scriptures. That's the Old Testament. Because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Do you want to learn about Jesus? Become an expert in Genesis. Jesus continually said to the Pharisees, if you would listen to Moses, you would listen to me, for Moses was speaking of 
me. So let's begin with just a little uh, bit, bit of introduction to get our feet underneath ourselves since we're going to spend a significant amount of time here. Uh, the author of Genesis is Moses. And he wrote it about uh, between uh, 1445 B.C. and 1405. Let's see. Does this work? Okay. Uh, Moses wrote this sometime after uh, the Exodus and before his death. And uh, the Bible attributes the beginnings, the the book of Moses to Moses over and over and over again. I could show you a bunch of scriptures. I'll just uh, uh, share with you a couple here. Uh, for example, in Joshua 8.30, uh, uh, we read this. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. Over and over and over again, both the Old and New Testament refer to the book of the law of Moses. It's God's own word that points us to the human author of Genesis but understanding how divine revelation works, that every word of Scripture is God's word as they are inspired and carried on by the Spirit of God to uh, perfectly give us the word of God. Another example would be in 1 Kings uh, 2, 2 and, and verse 3. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. This is David who's dying and he's commissioning Solomon he says, be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And there could be many, many more examples uh, pointing us to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, being given to us through the prophet Moses. Uh, in the New Testament, I'll give you a couple examples. In Luke 24, 26, Jesus, talking to the two on the road to Emmaus, says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then Jesus says, beginning with Moses. And all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So when Jesus talks about the beginnings of scripture, he points us to Moses. Or John 5.45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you have believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. 
We're not going to be absent of Christ because we're going to spend a study in the book of Genesis. We're going to see the foundation from which Christ comes and is revealed to us uh, in God's word. So someone might say, well, I'm concerned that Genesis is written by Moses uh, since he lived so long after Adam. Well, I just found this interesting. Uh, I was at, John was actually talking to, to me about this and then uh, studying this a little bit. I found this interesting. So uh, I hope this is helpful. Uh, the book of Genesis gives us genealogies. Uh, it helps us uh, it, it, it really records the history of mankind. Uh, and the scripture gives us this all the way up to Christ. And so we see in Genesis 5 uh, something like this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died, and so on, and so on, and so on. And huh, it's hard for us to imagine what life was like when people lived so long. And I just wanted to give you a visual on this. Uh, let's take uh, Abraham, for example. Uh, the scripture gives us genealogies uh, down to Abraham, but let's look at one of Adam's great-great-great-grandsons, Methuselah, all right? Look how much time Methuselah would have lived and been able to talk to Adam. Everything in yellow would have overlapped Adam's life, all right? Now... Let's go to Shem, Noah's son. He overlapped with Methuselah. Now look at Abraham. Abraham's life overlaps with Shem. So really, Abraham, to hear an oral account of what God did with Adam and his family and even walking in the garden, all these things only needs to pass through two people in a time when oral uh, tradition, passing on uh, very accurate information uh, uh, from generation to generation, it's amazing to me, considering the fact that uh, about 430 years after Abraham, you have Moses. And we know that from Abraham to Moses, those genealogies are kept tight. This is Israel, right? And so 
obviously we don't need to be concerned that Genesis is accurate because it's God's word. Whether Moses got passed down tradition or not, and he obviously did, God can speak anything he wants to his prophets, and he can write down it exactly uh, the inaccurate account of things. But I just found this interesting and a little bit related. So this is to Abraham, for example. Um, when we talk about, in a few weeks, uh, we'll get into the age of the earth a little bit. And I'm sure some of you have heard of like uh, young earth creationists uh, believe that the world is about 6,000 years old. How do they come up to that? Well, the way they come up to that is they take these genealogies and we know uh, how long they lived all the way up to Abraham. But the key with Abraham is this. There's actually archaeological evidence, very good evidence, that uh, we know when Abraham lived in world history. And then we can trace Abraham forward. So from Abraham working through these genealogies back, it can give you an idea that it, uh, somewhere close to 404 B.C. is when Adam would have been created. And, and so uh, young earth creationists are seeking to look at the data God gives us uh, in the scripture uh, to help us uh, understand human history. And that's one of the things we'll talk about more in the upcoming weeks is, is Genesis chapter 1 through 11 just general spiritual truths or is God accounting history of, of real people, which I think uh, he is. Um, so Moses is the author of Genesis. It seems like Christ is pointing us back uh, to this very fact and we can trust uh, the word of God that has been given to us alright just a quick uh, a geographical overview as we go through Genesis so Genesis 1 through 11 the, ge the geographical setting uh, is basically in Mesopotamia where it says Babylonia there kind of up in that area uh, which then will move to Palestine, or you might think of the promised land, and then obviously they end up at the end of Genesis in Egypt, just so you kind of conceptualize uh, geographically the flow uh, of Genesis. Um, uh, if you're going to look at just a real simple uh, way people talk about the book of Genesis, uh, they say uh, often that uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is, is described as primitive history, God's relation with the world. And then at Genesis 12, uh, we see uh, God relating very specifically with Abraham and his family. Now, God, as we understand the story of, of Scripture, isn't done with the world, but as he zooms in, on Abraham and his family, we're actually uh, beginning to understand God's plan for saving the world. 
uh, after the fall. So one way people have talked about the narrative of the Bible is in this sort of uh, setup. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You can think of creation when God said it was good and very good as the way it ought to be. But then after the fall, we find the way it is today. But in light of Christ, there can be redemption in an already not yet sense in the present because of Christ. But one day, creation uh, will become uh, the way it will be for all eternity, and that is fully consummated, fully restored. Not just back to uh, the Garden of Eden, but better than the Garden of Eden, as we're now found uh, in Christ. Just as far as visually speaking, uh, I kind of like these pictures here, uh, because you see consummation is even greater than creation. But then you also see that in the here and now, the already yet, we already start to see fruit in Christian lives. We already get to see uh, fruit in God's creation as God's people are uh, living for His glory. And we're seeing the graces of God. And so as we think of Genesis, what I'm going to argue is that the seedling of the whole story it, and the germination of those seeds is all right here in Genesis. And if you go try to read the story but don't have Genesis right, uh, you're going to be in all a mess. You start reading about Israel, what's the deal with Israel, why does God keep dealing with these people? If you don't understand Genesis, you won't understand uh, your Bible. Uh, specifically, just thinking of Genesis, rather than cre creation, fall, redemption, creation misses God in a sense. Yes, God created it, but I like thinking of it like this. When you read the first verse of the Bible in the beginning, before it says anything about creation, it says God. So if I was going to go, the, main, the most fundamental theme throughout Genesis is God comes onto a scene as a re relational God, and he creates man. And yes, man falls, and yes, there's judgment, but there's also the promise of redemption. And right there, all the rest of Scripture stands on top of these themes that I'm, I'm arguing that it, it's, it's clearly to see. Everyone argues this way. In the first three chapters of Genesis, you already have these themes on the table. So this is exciting. If you lean in and you seek to understand all that God gives us in these chapters... This is practically going to encourage your heart, help you understand the Bible better in your own Bible reading. It's going to make you a better evangelist. 
It's going to encourage you as you suffer in a fallen world to have perspective on what's actually happening when everything else seems so chaotic. All right? So I want you to imagine with me for a minute um, having a garden that's planted full of all kinds of seeds. And imagine this garden that's already been planted. Rains have already uh, come upon the soil and begin to germinate the seeds. And imagine looking at this totally black dirt that now has the very beginnings of these bright green sprouts that are pushing up through the soil. Though at a distance, you might just see black. You might not see all the life. It's not just potential life. It's already life. It's already there. And though you look at all these individual sprouts and, and there's much more black than green, you can already see, in a sense, with real evidence and imagine what this garden's going to be like as it becomes mature. You can imagine all of its fruits that it will produce. Even though you're just looking at these sprouts, there's a sense where a garden like that is pregnant with life and sustenance. Even with what might seem to be small beginnings, Genesis is like this garden that's beginning to bloom. In it, the stage is set for everything that's about to be played out through the rest of Scripture. And in this sense, as you've already heard, it's absolutely foundational. Now, I'm convinced after painstaking reading in introductions to a commentary, it can be frustrating when Scripture gets picked at and pick that and pick that, and you have to read all these arguments against all these critical uh, uh, liberal scholars. I don't know that there's been more picking than at chapter one of Genesis than anywhere else, but it makes sense. If you want to make a building fall, where are you going to shoot? If the devil shot at the cross, everyone would just say, well, shooting at the cross. But if you shoot at a foundation that isn't a cross, it's real easy to say, well, there's no gospel issue in Genesis. You see? And people let it slide. And so my point is, and we'll get into this uh, more in the upcoming weeks, is it's foundational. You can't just do what you want at the very beginning, when God begins to speak. And I think God's word will show us, in God's word, how to handle Genesis. I think Christ will show us how to handle Genesis. I think David will show us that he understands Genesis as human history, not merely poetry. And so we'll get into more of that stuff in the future. Um, so 
So Genesis has always been the focus of many attacks, seeking to undermine the authority of Scripture. For in Genesis, we find the enemy of atheism. In Genesis, we find uh, the enemy of materialism and pantheism. All those views hate Genesis. They're destroyed at the very beginning. I want to read a pretty lengthy quote by, by James Montgomery Boyce to put this in perspective. Here's what he says. The clearest negative statement is the denial of atheism. If God was in the beginning, then there was and is a God. How can it be otherwise? To say less would, would be to say that God is dependent on creation, being subject to the same laws, and therefore could not be at the beginning of creation as Genesis says he was. A second denial is materialism. When the text says that God was in the beginning before creation, it sets him apart from creation and therefore apart from matter of which all else is made. Ours is not an entirely materialistic universe, as materialism would argue. Moreover, since God created matter, matter did not always exist, which is what a true philosophy of materialism teaches. Finally, the opening statements of Genesis deny pantheism. Pantheism is the philosophy that God is in the matter, or is matter. It underlines most pagan and animalistic religions. But if God created matter, then he's separated from it, and he is superior to it. And any religion that worships matter is idolatrous. So you just get one verse into the Bible, and the Bible points its guns at all these false religions of the day. And so it's no surprise if Satan's the prince of the power of the air that he's going to want to point his guns right away at the foundation of, of God's word. And then Boyce goes on to say, these and many other false philosophies err because they begin with man or matter and work up to God, if indeed they go so far. But Genesis stands against them all when it begins with God and sets him forth as the originator of all things. He goes on to say, Genesis is important because it gives us our origins, not merely the origin, origins of one particular family, but the origins of matter, life, values, evil, grace, the family, nations, and other things in a way that unites us all. Without the teachings of this book, here's the key statement, life is meaningless. Without the teachings of Genesis, life is meaningless. And then Boyce uh, finishes up with this. He says, when the, secular, when the secularists come along in the middle of the last century and cut the society of their day off from any sense of history, the deed was greeted with cries of, of joyous appreciation and great glee. 
to be freed from the past, particularly from the biblical past, with its God of moral standards and threats of judgment. It seemed to be true liberation. Man was free. And if he was free, he could do what he pleased, which is what he had wanted all along, without fear of God or judgment. Unfortunately, now get this, secular man did not see at what price this ghost of liberty had won. Free from the past? Yes. And of the future, too. But now man was adrift on a great sea of nothingness, a bubble on the deep, having come from nothing and drifting to a meaningless shore. No wonder that the contemporary man is empty, miserable, frustrated. He is on the verge of a monumental breakdown. He gained freedom, so-called, but at the loss of value, meaning, and true dignity. No wonder he is searching for his roots. These are your neighbors. Why is suicide at an all-time high? Because the religion of our schools is naturalism. You realize that? When you take the scripture out of the schools because it's religious, it wasn't replaced with science, it was replaced with another religion. The religion of naturalism or materialism. In a false god which strips every student from any meaning in life, making them merely animals with no future ahead has become the norm in our day. We've seen the results of a society that has so laughed, the enemies of God have so affected, effectively shot their missiles at Genesis that even Christian scholars don't quite want to believe it for fear of being laughed at as mere simple idiots. And so, we live in a world that is lost. And this certainly does not know who man is. And has no idea who Christ is. And has no idea who God is. And therefore has no idea what the purpose of their life is. And why they even exist. Christian brothers and sisters. Let me ask you a question. Where are you going to take your friends that are lost? When you find out your friend through another friend is suicidal, where are you going to take them? See, this isn't just the stuff for theologians. This is your life. You've been called to make disciples of the nations. Where are you going to take your neighbors whom you're called to love and to point them to truth where are you going to take them? When they ask you questions like, where did God come from? Okay, you believe in God. Where did he come from? 
Do you know how you're going to answer that question? Who created him? If God is so good and powerful and wise, then why am I surrounded by sickness, war, and death? Why does selfishness, abuse, and anger, and deceptions, and so on and so on, rule human hearts if your God is true? Or maybe you'll get questions like this. Why can't I be who I want to be? Why can't I sleep with who I want to sleep with? Why do you Christians come and try to take away everybody's freedoms? Now, I don't know if they're going to say these out loud. If you have a personal relationship with your friends, you should be talking about these things. These things should be a part of your discussion. They'll ask questions like, why is your God so insecure that he demands worship? How can you believe in a God in light of science, evolution, and reason? Don't those contradict everything you believe? What if they say, what hope is there for any of us anyway? I'm arguing that what we're going to look at in Genesis is where you need to go. It's where you need to go. Let's just take a quick flyover in conclusion here. Genesis 1.1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And let's go before the comma, in the beginning, and then the first word after it, God. Let's not, let, let's not jump to creation. The Bible doesn't start with creation. The Bible starts with God. You must start with God. He's the everlasting God. So if you're looking at your notes, I'm just going to briefly take you through God, man, judgment, redemption. Just to show you that this is where we're going before we get into the detail, okay? So right away, at the very beginning, in the first verse, you see that our God is an everlasting God. When did your God begin? He had no beginning. In fact, that's what it means to be God. He's an everlasting God. There's no beginning, there's no end. We see also in this text that he is the self-existent God. He exists in and of himself. He simply is. He is the great I am. Who's God supposed to say he is? Except he's the existing one. Haven't we already dove into deep theology <laughs> and we're four words in to the first verse of scripture and all these false religions are already 
destroyed? And we, we've just begun. Next week we get to flesh this out and see how, what, what implications this has for our life. We see also at the beginning here, as God is thrust onto the scene, that not only is he the everlasting God, the self-existing God, he's the self-sufficient God. He has no needs and depends on nothing outside of himself. You've never known anything like this. You've only ever been a dependent being. Where are you going to get your next breath? And by the way, you need oxygen that is outside of you. You're dependent upon it. You need food and you need sunlight. Everything is dependent. God is not dependent upon anything. If you want to understand the world correctly, imagine God on top, then a line, everything else below the line. That's what the Bible teaches. Nothing else below the line is God. Everything is created below the line. He's the self-sufficient one. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need encouragement. He doesn't need workers. He doesn't need company. He is self-sufficient. We'll look more into that next week. And since he's everlasting, self-sufficient, self-existent, God also is thereby immutable. He's the unchanging God who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Four words into Genesis 1. And God, which causes our minds to hurt. I, I mean, often have this discussion with my girls. I don't... I. It's so frustrating to think about. What do you mean God had no beginning? If it's hurting your head, you're beginning to think rightly. Because God created the beginning, which means he created time. And cre he created space, and he created matter. And so... Finally, just in regards to God, maybe one of the most sobering things to realize is not only is God self-existent, self-sufficient, the everlasting God, not only is he the creator of all things, it also means he's the inescapable God. It doesn't matter if you like him or don't like him. You're his creation. He's inescapable. It doesn't matter if you trick your brothers and sisters in Christ and hide things from them. Everything will be revealed. Everyone will be found out. Everyone will stand before the inescapable God of the universe. Isn't this foundation for our feet. Hmm. 
My friends, he therefore is the inescapable God who created the universe out of nothing, but spoke it into being by the word of his power in all wisdom and declared it to be all good with the crown of his creation being described as very good as he created mankind. And when he creates mankind and has a relationship with mankind, we find out God is a personal God. He is a God of love. The crowning work of creation, being mankind, created in his own image, male and female, he created them. That answers that question. He created them to rule and have dominion over the earth, to reflect God's glory. He blessed them, giving them the institution of marriage, charging them to be fruitful and multiply. God made a covenant of works with Adam, a covenant in which would sustain them with eternal life and fellowship with him as they had access to the tree of life in the garden, if only they would obey his word. Mankind comes onto the scene. Sexuality comes onto the scene. Marriage comes onto the scene. Man required to obey God's word comes onto the scene. A relationship with God comes onto the scene. A covenant with man comes onto the scene. Right away in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis 3, we know that this is a covenant that they broke as they were tempted by the devil and ate from the forbidden tree, falling from a state of great of the grace of eternal life falling into eternal judgment. As sin entered the world, the results of sin was namely death. And it became a curse upon all of creation. Why is the world as it is? Why is there wars? Why is there divorce? Why is there anger? Why is there abuse? If you get Genesis right, you have the answer to all of those questions. If God is so good, then why did this happen? God created it good and very good, and man decided that God was not good and gave them what he told them he would give them. That's how we got to where we are. But as a curse came upon the earth, a curse was also spoken over the serpent as God, by sheer grace, promised offspring that would come from the woman that would deliver a deadly blow to the serpent while, in a very ironic way, he himself would receive a fatal heel wound. So, the woman is promised to destroy this tempter that brought sin into the world, but the destroyer himself is going to also receive a fatal wound. There's going to be a victorious person born that's also a wounded person. 
And in that promise, that promise is pregnant with hope that maybe this curse, this sin and death is brought, can be lifted. This obviously is alluding to the future defeat of Satan by Christ as he defeats the curse of death by becoming a curse himself and dying under the wrath of God for the sins of his people, only to be raised from the dead, offering them eternal life and perfect fellowship with him to all who would trust in him by faith. And Christ will come again. There will be consummation. There's already been redemption in Christ. But Jesus secured for us the guarantee of a new heavens and a new earth. And life without sin. Forevermore. And we can see all that in the first three chapters of Genesis. Let me conclude with this. C.S. Lewis once told of looking into a dark tool shed with a small hole in its roof. Imagine C.S. Lewis crawling into a dark tool shed, little hole in the ceiling. A beam of light was shining through the hole. Lewis was surprised that as he looked at the light, he could see dust particles floating in the air but the light did nothing to illuminate the shed. It didn't help him see the shed. But when he climbed up on a table and looked down with the light, he could see everything in the shed clearly. Lewis compared the beam of light with the gospel. Looking with the light of the gospel allows us to analyze and interpret the world in which we live. And that's our goal. To take God's revelation that ultimately points us to Christ. To look with that light and understand the world we live in. Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this room. The saved and the unsaved needs to live upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we need to be reminded over and over and over again. For it's through the gospel that continued sanctification will come. That we'll be able to continually fight indwelling sin. Father, if there's anyone here that has felt hopeless and confused and doesn't understand the world or maybe has been confused by all the lies the world has told them and they're wondering if there's any hope at all. Father, I pray that they would turn to Christ, the one whom all the scriptures point. There is life for sinners in the perfect Son of God who died in their place. Father, would you be pleased to use your word to strengthen us, encourage us, to make us better evangelists and disciples in this world. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.